This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Robert Hilburn, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Have a great day. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. Have you read this one? This is this is a story that needs to be told. Please, rock and roll, want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hey, diggers. It is Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist, here today with another edition of The Rock and Roll Librarian. Yes, we know it's been a while, but uh, we finally, I think our rock and roll librarian had gone missing. That's what it was. She was like lost. Melania. Uh, yes, like Melania. <laughs> Uh, she was lost, uh, but has now been found. So Yay. yes, with us today is, of course, Shelly Sorensen. How you doing, Shelly? I'm, I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing pretty darn good. I'm yeah. doing pretty darn good. So oh, where have you been? What's been going on? Well, um, I've been singing with oh, a band. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're so, busy in other artistic pursuits. Yes, it's way fun. I'm oh, having yeah. a great time. Yes, yeah. I think it's it's my fault, isn't it? Yeah, you you introduced us me to a friend of yours who has a band, oh, and he, they'd lost their singer, and yeah. now I'm her. And now I pay for it. That's right. Oh now, well, the I'm diggers like, are paying for it because come on, they really love the rock and roll librarian. We hear about it all the time. So um, it's good to have you back. Uh, we know we've got a couple of books coming here pretty quickly, so folks, uh, I don't think you're going to go missing again, right? No, you have me. Tethered (laughs) to a new book already. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) Okay, well, hey, let's get into it. So um, what do you got on the docket today? Well, I I read a very interesting book. Um, It was sent to me by our friends at DeCapo Press. Oh, yes, yes, yes. uh, Addressed to the Rock and Roll. We've done a couple of books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did their, um, one of their books about the replacements, Trouble Boys. Trouble Boys, right. That was a great one. Mm Mm-hmm. So the one um, I read recently that oh, they, they have sent a Steve me. Jones book. I want them to send us the Steve Jones book. Yes. Would you want to do that? Sure. Do you know who that is? No. <laughs> Steve Jones, guitar player from the Sex Pistols. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I'm like, sure, I'll I read dig- anything. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> okay. This is the book I read. It's called Hit So Hard, a memoir by Patty Schemmel. And Patty Schemmel was the drummer of Courtney Love's band, Hole. Oh, the original drummer. Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Back, uh, oh, what, In early the 90s. 90s, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. wow. Gosh. 90s band. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, the, the grungiest of the grunge. Yes. And, oh, you yes. know, as, as our 
Although listeners. a lot of people are going to be upset I said that because come on, they're you know they there's plenty of great grungy bands. So, um, but but whole Courtney, of course, um, you know, uh, became a big star, uh, you know, and she came from Hole, and you know, we'll we'll get into all of that. But first, I'm going to play um, their biggest hit for everybody called Celebrity Skin. Oh, make me over. I'm all I wanna be. I walk and study. Oh, Christian, you know, that's a good song, but Patty didn't actually play on that record. What? No, she didn't. She played on uh, their previous record, Live Through This. Oh, but yeah. But by the time Celebrity Skin, actually, she, she co-wrote and um, wrote the drum parts for all the songs on Celebrity Skin. But oh. by the time they got to the studio, she was deep into her drug addiction and um, she was fired oh, by ceremoniously uh, dis- unceremoniously dismissed. She was, though. Um, well, we'll get to that story later. But um, by the time that album, you know, was recorded, she was not actually playing on the album, though she's credited on the album. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting. Okay, so Patty Schemmel, um, you know, uh, I think she was helped start the band, if I remember right. Well, uh, they. They had a whole, um, was a band with, um, Courtney and, um, Eric Erlinson, who's yes. the lead guitar player. Right, right. And they had done a previous album, but they had just, uh, kind of guest musicians on it. And they were, you know, actively, they, you know, came to a point where they really wanted an actual band with a bass, a permanent bass player and a drummer. So mm-hmm. that's when they mm-hmm. went looking for those well those it's, uh, people is the book chronological it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it starts with the beginning of uh, young patty schemmel that's right and the, the first so line of tell the us book, about the young patty schemmel. well the first line is great i i love the first sentence of the book i was born recovering and by that it means a lot of things but basically means she was she lived in a recovering alcoholic's Household. Her parents were both recovering alcoholics and very um, active in AA. In fact, she had AA meetings in her living room as she was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh. but her parents were not drinkers. You know, they were um, they were ex drinkers. They were ex. They were recovering alcoholics. Oh, so and, she never had uh, like uh, the alcoholic uh, yeah. father and the the fights and the 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 whiskey the thrown against the wall, and, right? And, yeah, and stuff the beatings like that. and all that oh, stuff. So, so that wasn't the problem. No, and, that wasn't um, the problem. And uh, she gets into this more, you know, later. But um, you know, she first of all, um, she. She knew fairly 
early on that she wasn't the same as other girls. She ended up being gay. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she had crushes on girls, even in elementary school. Which is totally cool and acceptable today. Right. And we're all pro, uh, what is it, LBGTQ Mm -hmm. uh, and all that. Um, People are who they are. But if this is, if she's like our age and growing up in the 70s and 80s, not exactly acceptable at that no. time. No, I mean, she felt like a, um, like a, you know, an outsider. A, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a freak, oh, basically. Right. And one thing well, that's. Well, I int- felt like that and I wasn't even gay. I, I know. And the, the interesting part is that, you know, she started drinking pretty early. Her, um, not because her parents had alcohol in the house, but her brother. And she just, you know, she had an older sister and she tried vodka or, you know, mm. rum and coke or something. And she just took to it right away. She was like, <laughs> she had this sense of calm and fearlessness, you know, that she was smart and then she was attractive and she just felt at home with it. And, um, and what she says later is that she would get like really drunk, you know, at parties and stuff like that. And once she actually made a pass at one of her friends and she was just totally humiliated and she realized that it was more socially acceptable to be a drunk than it was to be a lesbian. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And so she could just say, oh, there's no big deal. I was was, drunk. I was drunk. I was drunk. I don't know what I'm doing, man. Just don't forget about it. Yeah. So... You know, anyway, she and she she very early on, um, her father bought her a set of drums. I think when she was about uh, 13, her brother played guitar. And so she really she was really took to the drums right away and, you know, really saw it as a way for her to get out her aggression and her anger. Um, I think just about being, you know, a teenager and about being different from other kids and everything. Mm -hmm. And she loved that it hurt, that she would just, she just play the drums really hard until, until her hands were bleeding and, and just playing through the pain. There was something about that that really appealed to her. And that, in, in that way, that's why punk appealed to her too, because it was very hard hitting and helped her, you know, deal with her aggression. Oh, that's okay. Uh, I, I feel that. I know that when I was younger. Yeah, playing uh, would get all kinds of emotions out uh, and uh, uh, make you feel better afterwards. So um, I can understand that. So there wasn't like a trauma in the family, uh, it sounds like. No, it's, though her parents did divorce. Um, oh, okay. Her dad had a had an affair and moved out and so you know in a way she that happens to a lot of people yeah she lived in a in a broken home and Mm -hmm. went between you know at first she lived with her mom and then she lived with her dad and so she kind of talks about that like why was she so angry you know maybe it was because she was gay and she felt odd or maybe it was because her parents were divorced maybe it was in her just in her makeup she she doesn't really know but this but she did have these really strong feelings that, you know, that, that drumming really uh, helped her with. Mm. Now, she grew up in uh, Seattle area? That in the, sort of yeah, thing? in that area, Marysville, which okay. is near Seattle. All right. All yeah, right. and, and uh, after she and her brother, you know, started playing music together, and then um, she, um, well, she had a, a band when she was in high school called Milkbone, um, and then um, I bet the dogs love that. Yeah, it's kind of a B fifty two 
vibe of oh, a, uh-huh. a band, okay. which I which I can appreciate. They were fun, mm. um, and then you know they started playing in Seattle and Tacoma, and so when she was you know out of high school and a young adult, um, she she would play in Seattle and Tacoma and Olympia, and she became a member of a band, an all girl band in '87 called Doll Squad and they rehearsed at a place called Music Bank in which was a Seattle warehouse and that was the same place that Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam also rehearsed I don't know if at, at the same time but that was you know yeah, basically, out, out of that rehearsal hall right. comes uh, Alice in Chains and yeah. Pearl Jam and right. so they you know they did this this band called Doll Squad was uh, she was with them for about 2 years and they did do an album, though it's not on you know, anywhere that you can find it. I mean, they have recordings. So um, the the one that I could find on YouTube was a song called Hazy. Hazy. Out of this band called oh. Doll Squad. So one of her first professional uh, drumming gigs. Okay, well then let's play Hazy from Doll Squad. Well, that sounds like an all-female punk band, yeah. uh, definitely. Uh, there's some cool energy uh, in there. I'd have to check them out to see if uh, if I felt they were like really something to pay attention to. But uh, but uh, but uh, you know, I could I could definitely feel the energy going there. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Some cool um, lead guitar part in that song. Too. Yeah, almost like a medley bit of lead guitar mm-hmm. stuff going mm-hmm. on there. So uh, yeah. yeah, that was cool. Yeah. So so after she was in um, that band, actually before she was in that band, she was in a band called The Primitives um, very, very briefly. And that was where she met Kurt Cobain. Oh, yeah. okay. The connection because, to Hole. All right. Yeah. So he was a roadie for The Primitives, which is kind of funny. <laughs> and um, she first saw Nirvana play in... Um, at the Community World Theater in Tacoma after, you know, she'd known him for a while. Mm-hmm. And they they really connected um, when she first met him. And they became good friends, actually. They were about the same age. They'd both come from divorced homes. They both were alienated in high school, uh, grew up in working-class Washington. And so they had a lot of you know, they had a lot in common. And she said when, you know, when he first got into Nirvana, when he's first playing, nobody was really, you know, there wasn't a huge buzz about him that he was some kind of really special prophet. Um, (laughs) You know, it was just like, oh, yeah, you know, but he, you know, his abilities, you know, people talked about his abilities and his songwriting. And, 
um, you know, around that time that she was friends with him, she took her first heroin injection and, and describes it as nothing special. You know, she was just kind of whatever. She would do whatever, whatever Everybody substance, else is doing, right. whatever what if, substance was, was around yeah, and would right, kill her right. feelings. And, you know, and yeah. And of course, it was a pretty druggy atmosphere at yeah. that time. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in another band called Sybil, which was later named Kill Sybil with her brother, Larry. And um, so there was a, a very vibrant music scene, not just in Seattle, but in Tacoma and Olympia actually was um, up there in, in Washington, was really important in the music scene. Oh, yeah. And then, um, so, you know, she, she moved around, but she remembers very vividly the summer of 1991 when she was living in the Mission District here in San Francisco, that teen spirit um, smells like Teen Spirit burst on the, uh, you know, on the radio waves and became huge and was just playing everywhere. Well, that's what I was laughing about is that, uh, you know, nobody recognizes a, a genius until they arrive. Right. You know, and then, of course, everybody then points back and says, oh, of course, of we, course we knew this. Yes, we always yeah. knew, but Patty yeah, doesn't yeah, say that. She yeah. says, no, eh, he was just a friend. He was just fun. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. let's play a little of... Uh, of, you know, the probably the most famous uh, grunge rock song of all time, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's one of the greatest rock songs ever recorded. Yeah. I mean, you just, <laughs> you know, what do you do uh, when you got that? Man, that's uh, that's so powerful um, on so many levels. Uh, it, it, it just works uh, culturally. Uh, just the music powerful. The lyrics are meaningful. Um, it's, uh, it's uh, I could go on forever. Say something. <laughs> You want me to interrupt you? <laughs> yes. Yeah, because yeah, it's thought. not about it's not. This is not about Kurt. Kurt and and um, that song in that song. But, yes. But let's face it. Um, I mean, this this totally changes uh, Patty's life along with a lot of other people when this thing uh, arrives. It pretty much. I, I remember being in L.A. and I, I knew uh, immediately. And you know, Guns and Roses had kind of pretty much laid the gauntlet down that uh you know what was happening in music prior was at an end but uh literally this killed um you know the hair metal scene overnight yeah uh, i mean oh, within, sorry. within just a few yes <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I say that I'm I, I cheered along with that uh, at the time um and i knew it um i knew a lot of people who didn't like that but that is what happened yeah yeah um, well you know patty uh, you know, like I said, she was living in San Francisco, yeah, heard yeah, the yeah, song the all over yeah. the place. And shortly thereafter, um, got a phone call from um, Courtney Love's 
guitar player, Eric Erlander, who oh, was... Oh, who started uh, uh, Hole. Right, yeah, right, right. and they had already played on an album together, Courtney, Love, and Eric, um, because the, they had a, an album called Pretty on the Inside, which some different people played on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I said that already. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so so Erlander, they wanted a, re- a real band. They needed to find more musicians. And he um, called her. Actually, Kurt recommended Patty to Courtney Love to be in, in Hole. Yeah, because they knew each other, um, as we have established. Um, Kurt, Kurt and Patty, and Patty were friends, were friends right? and knew each other. Right, and, and so, somewhere around is there... This, is this when... So are they Kurt and uh, and, and Courtney. Courtney together now? At Kurt this and Courtney. <laughs> Courtney. Courtney. Yeah, Courtney. Yeah, these days they Courtney. would be called Courtney. Um, yeah, they were together. Um, we were just talking about... Um, when when they met sometime in 90 91 um actually my my younger sister knew Courtney Love's uh first husband James Moreland and met her a couple times in LA where Courtney Love was was based um in the late eight in the late 80s I guess mm-hmm. um so so anyway Kurt knew Patty. They were friends. So Courtney was looking for a drummer and Kurt recommended Patty. So they called her down to L.A. um, and she played with them with Courtney and um, Eric a few songs. Um, She she Eric had sent her some of the songs off the first album and some of the ones that they were working on at the time. And so they played together and then Courtney stopped the musical session and and just kind of started peppering her with questions like what kinds of drugs do you do? And then the next one was, do you want to be my drummer? Oh, yes. And then, I've had that sort of job fine. interview before. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Experience looks nice. Uh, good education. Okay. And uh, well, what kind of drugs do you do? Oh, heroin. Yeah. Marijuana. Okay. Uh, any LSD? Oh, 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 some of us around here do do LSD. That's good. That's good. Okay. All right. Wow. <laughs> That's where the new workspace <laughs> spaces they have in San Francisco right now. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know. Right away. I mean, they just played like three songs and then she's like, fine, it's settled. You'll you're come. in the band. You're, you're in the, not only in the band, but you're going to come to LA and you're going to live with Kurt and me. Okay. So Patty lived with, um, with Kurt and Courtney kind of between LA and Seattle because Seattle was where they still had a lot of, you know, their musical connections and their instruments. And I guess Kurt was based in Seattle too. Um, but I love the, um, Patty's description of meeting Courtney. She says, Courtney had to talk the way some people had to smoke a cigarette. I mean, she just like yammer. I mean, people talk about Courtney like that all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, that she just can't stop talking and can't stop. And she like free associates and moves from one topic to another, like really quickly. You can barely follow her, her train of thought. She said she had a conversational style like pinball. So, um, so anyway, that's what happened, and Nirvana became the number one band in the United yeah. States around that time. And wasn't wasn't Patty almost in Nirvana or something? Yeah, the like story. That? Well, I what the story is, and Patty doesn't say this in her book, but um, I I read this that um that Kurt was considering Patty for Nirvana also, but he settled on Dave Grohl. <laughs> he settled for Dave Grohl. Oh, yeah, yes. that guy. <clears throat> Uh, probably a good choice. Nothing against Patty, but let's face it. It, it worked out. It ain't Dave Grohl. 
Yeah. You know, so uh, Dave Grohl is Dave Grohl. All right. All yeah. right. Okay. So, so Kurt, uh, Sir Nirvana was on a, like a big world tour, I guess. And when he came home, he was totally depleted. I mean, this, you know, this, um, she saw this firsthand that his, his experience and relationship. Yeah, the star making machine really ate yeah, him Yeah, to, yeah, to, to um, success mm-hmm was like, you know, he's a musician, he wants to be successful, he wants to make music, but when it happens, it was just too much for him. It was hard for him to manage that because as it turns out, you know, as we know, he was clinically depressed and when you're that depressed, even though millions of people love you, you still like look at yourself and you don't find yourself that lovable. Right. So, you right. know, it's a sad situation. Um but they, they all moved back to Seattle together to record an, an EP for Hole, and Patty used Dave Grohl's kit for the sessions, for the recording sessions. So oh, that, okay. That was interesting. For Live Through This? Um, no, for this EP that they were working oh, on. I okay. think some of, the, some of the songs from Live Through This were on the EP as well. And one of the songs that they wrote at that time together in the studio was Beautiful Sun, which appears on the album Live Through This. So I thought we could have a listen to Beautiful Sun because that turned out to be one of their... Uh, very popular songs too. Well, I think that is a fantastic idea. Thank you. So let's play "Beautiful Sun" by Hole. You look good in my dress. I get your friends to clean the mess. You look good in my clothes. I can feel you wear the So, um, yeah, interestingly enough, you know, that the song is called Beautiful Sun. And shortly, S-O-N, son. Hmm? S-O-N, yeah, son. Yes. Yeah, and shortly thereafter, Courtney was pregnant with a daughter. Beautiful so, daughter. Yes, a Francis beautiful Bean. daughter. Francis yes. Bean Cobain, yes. And um, what... You know, I, I actually went back and read this um, Vanity Fair interview, which Patty um, mentions in the book, mm-hmm. um, that was that came out in 1992 when Courtney was hugely pregnant with Francis Bean. Oh. And I realized that the article was written by one of my college roommates, Lynn Hirschberg. Yep. Yeah, well, so it was really funny. Familiar connections go, oh, all wait, around here. Wait, her. your sister was buddies with, yeah, uh, with James Moreland. Right. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, now, uh, okay. Yep, my whole family is in here. No, that's that. not true. <laughs> but um, so, but um, the interesting thing about that article that Patty talks about too was that first of all, Courtney is smoking like chain smoking cigarettes during the interview, and also was very open in the interview about hers and Kurt's heroin oh. use. Well, while pregnant. And so, yeah. yeah. I remember this. And I so, remember this. Yeah, yes. As Patty oh, says. Did not turn out well. Everything exploded. Yeah. That was her quote in yeah. the book. Um, oh. They they were condemned by the public. They they were starting to be watched by um, Child Protective Services and the, the authorities. Yeah. And Kurt, being who he was, wanted to just kind of retreat. He didn't really want to draw attention to their drug use. But Courtney was like 
because of her personality, she just wanted to attack and defend, you know, her family and say, you know, fuck you, everybody. This I is can okay. do whatever we, I want to do. We know what we're doing. It's and, America. Yeah. Right. But, you know, yeah. Kurt had mm. this sense, mm. you know, he knew he was a drug addict He and he hated himself for his hypocrisy of, you know, presenting himself as one way to the world and trying to hide it at the same time. And at the time, actually, Courtney professed to wanting to clean up, you know, and, and stop doing um, heroin and other drugs. And that just made Kurt feel more kind of lonely and abandoned in his addiction because he was so addicted he was at that stage that a lot of people get to in her or most people where that get to in heroin addiction and other kinds where the drugs aren't working in the way that they did when you started them. No. You know, when, when they started the drugs, it, it was, was like a beautiful flower yeah. oh, exploding yeah. and, you oh, know, yeah. that just made them feel like they were walking on air. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, it just it gets takes more, to be used. It takes more to even get close to that high and, and then, then you can't ever get it. Then right. You, and then it's just it, not to feel miserable yeah exactly and then it doesn't even do that anymore right so that's 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 what happened not that i would know anything about that no nor me well but uh i don't know yeah that's uh, i remember that that was uh not exactly the smartest move on her part no but she's not proven to be super you know PR savvy, let's just say. No, I mean, uh, just, uh, her thing is being all out there. Yeah. You know? Authenticity. Yep. That is, you know, what you get is what, what you see is what you get. Uh, <laughs> there's no two ways about that. No. And, uh, love it, love it, or leave it. Uh, and uh, wow, yeah, that uh, that was that was pretty crazy. They were, I mean, you know, I think Kurt sounds like Kurt was a really good father um patty lived with them you know well when francis was a baby mm-hmm. they moved back to la they had to you know put up a, a show for cps and um oh child protective yes services, yeah. and actually um patty took a lot of home videos during this time mm-hmm. which show kurt and his his interaction with francis and you know patty was really close with francis too because she's another adult in the household and they all hung out and made music together and and kurt used these silly voices and he used to like um have pretend that francis was talking and use these really um funny voices to make her talk on these home videos so it's really cute you can see some of these on this um documentary that patty uh, features in about it's about her and it's called hit so hard just like the book and it was made um, about five or six years ago um, and you can see lots of home home videos of Kurt and and Courtney and Patty and little baby Francis well so. let's play a, a, a little of the documentary for people to hear maybe uh, Kurt doing some funny voices uh, for uh, for Francis uh, Bean and um, give everybody a flavor of the, of, uh, of the, um, the documentary. Camera got started because I wanted to document, you know, all the places I was going and our shows and stuff. A lot of stuff is gone, but the tape survived. I was completely high on dope. I cannot remember much about it. Kurt used to hang around us because he hated his band. Um, I really did. I mean, he hated those guys. They were real mean to him. Patty and him had a very special relationship, and you know she was probably more Nirvana than I was. Being an alcoholic and an addict, that was my first love. 
So, great companion piece to the book, definitely. Oh, it's yeah. so hard. So. I really enjoyed watching this movie on YouTube, so try to catch it. It's got yeah. interviews um, by other women drummers of the time and her counterparts, and then um, the the members of the band whole that uh, look back, you know, and talk about their time in the band together and... And her brother Larry is in it, and she's and Patty's in it too. So. Yeah, easily found on uh, on like uh, YouTube or Netflix or yeah. any of that. All right, cool, very cool. So during this time, you know that they were all living together, and Francis was a baby. Um, it was a very creative period for all of them. I mean, they were all right co-writing together, playing together, switching instruments, mm-hmm. you know, writing songs. Um, and, uh, he was writing songs for Nirvana and she and Courtney were writing songs for Hole. And sometimes there was crossover too, like something that they wrote for one band they might use for another one. Um, but one of the ones that she remembers hearing him working on for months was the vocal for Rape Me, which she could hear when she was falling asleep at night through the bedroom walls. And he would just sing it over and over and over again. So, you know, she was pulled into that family and um, Courtney, she thinks that Courtney trusted her to be a member, kind of like a trio with them, first because Kurt trusted her and then also because Patty was gay and not a threat to their marriage. So it was a kind of a perfect little triangle yeah, yeah, at yeah. the time. But I thought we could listen to Kurt singing Rape Me. Oh, yeah. From In Utero. Um <laughs> this is a heavy song. Let's hear Rape Me. Rape me. Rape me, my friend. Rape me. Rape me. Like the thought I've, I have while listening to that was like, it took months for him to, to create that vocal. So, anyway. <laughs> uh, maybe, it, maybe it was writing the 
full lyrics. I don't know. Yeah, right. Well, they were but, all on heroin, right? Yeah, right. And, and it seems like... So an, time like, does kind of slow down. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure that's the song I would want to hear while I was falling asleep, but that's okay. <laughs> not every night. I mean, it's <laughs> soothing kinda, enough. You're beginning to wonder, oh, somebody going to come in here yeah. after a few nights? Uh, maybe they're working up the courage? Yeah. Or, oh, God. No, no. Creepy. <laughs> all right. So... Then so Nirvana's huge. They get in. They oh, get yes. invited on this um, a tour of Brazil. Was called in 1993 called Festival Holly. It was a festival called Hollywood Rock, and um, Alice in Chains and Red Hot Chili Peppers were also on that bill. And Courtney and Patty were in, um, were included, and they went along for the tour. Um, there were starting to show some cracks in Nirvana's relationships that Patty noted at the time. They were having fights on stage. She said the first show in uh, Sao mean, Paulo. Grohl, between Grohl and Novoselic? And, um, uh... I guess she said um, Chris threw a guitar at Kurt. They were smashing equipment. Somebody threw a cantaloupe at somebody. Well, they kind of did some of that anyway. Right. It's kind of a, you know, a part of the act yeah but she i I think what she was yeah characterizing kind of more of the social relationships between them that kurt and uh, courtney tended to kind of go off by themselves and not mix with you know like not uh, socialize with the other band members Uh and um one one of the things that she also um talks about is how the red hot chili peppers you could tell they were the only band all the members were sober Oh. And, you know, it was like they were doing the album Blood Sugar Sex Magic right. and just like in good shape, high energy. They were serious, yeah. They yeah. were touring. They were hiking. Under the Rick Rubin thumb is where they were. Yeah, they were They were really, um, you know, out there seeing Sao Paulo and Brazil and while the other, all the other um, bands were, Hiding you know, in the sl- dark sleeping spots, late, looking, recovering looking from the next drug. Uh, to hit right. yeah recovering from their drugs the right. night before mm-hmm. in fact uh lane stacy lane, lane St- staley staley from alice in chains mm-hmm. uh, arranged for their heroin dealer to come down from la strapped with heroin and needles under her clothes so that they she could provide you know so that everybody would have their heroin down in down in brazil and you know patty admits she she enabled Kurt he was her friend and she wanted him to be happy so she helped him get you know heroin or whatever he needed or you know supported him in that um you know that's that's just the way it is and it's kind of hard she was a junkie too so you know what are you gonna do you can't get all high and mighty but you see your friend going pretty much down the tubes and it's uh hard to look back on i guess and see that you had a you know that you played a part in in uh you know supporting that person on their downward slide well she's being honest about it yep yeah she's definitely honest in this book i would say um but while they were there they had a studio space um so courtney and patty could work on songs and they worked on songs and nirvana recorded some songs in that in the studio space that they had down there and while they were there they worked on the one another one of the songs that's on um live through this which is miss world so i thought we could listen to a little bit of that one okay let's play a little of miss world (laughs) 
cool song um but you know the knock on on courtney is uh and through association um uh and, and i have to be delicate about this but because uh, I, I don't i don't see her as a ripoff per se but there are a lot of similarities between um courtney's music and kurt's music yeah you know um let's face it you know kurt achieves uh the fame uh for doing this first and then courtney um you know uh matures as a songwriter being around somebody like that so and and, and anybody you know who you know can pay attention and uh and pick up on some things would would begin to do that and it was the the music of the times as well right um and she's gotten a lot of unfair shit uh for you know the 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 suicide and um and what went down and, and that sort of thing and right. you know I, I i don't think there's any any even remotely any of that is true um but you know let's face it um you know uh, a lot of the songs do have uh you know they almost sound like they could have been penned by uh you know by by kurt yeah well it's possible i mean you know it's not surprising you know they lived together they collaborated um so i would i'm not surprised that there's definite influences and i suppose if one was studying this really minutely one you know you might say maybe she influenced him too you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i don't know we i wasn't in the room but um you know i would i mean like you said it was the music of the time but also you know they did collaborate he probably maybe he had a hand in writing some of their songs and you know who knows yeah at this point patty knows sounds like they did a lot of collaborating at that time yeah um you know after that tour in brazil they went back to seattle and patty talks about their hero about her heroin use at the time she was spending about a hundred dollars a day on heroin and the three of them were using the same drugs but not together you know not in the same room which is a kind of an interesting um kind of social fact about heroin use that I wasn't really aware of or I don't know if it's that way for most heroin users but you know there's maybe a certain amount of shame involved and that um, you know it's like everybody knows you're doing it but you don't do it in front of people but one of the funny things was that they they use the same person that they bought the drugs for from the same supplier and one time patty actually bumped into kurt at the supplier's place and he tried to talk her out of 
doing heroin, which was kind of too late to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And she didn't, of course, want to hear it. But he, you know, came out of his fog to a certain extent and looked at his friend and was like, I don't want the same thing for you as I'm doing to myself, you know, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is really poignant, I think. You know, especially when you look at what ended up happening to him. Um, but anyway, on with the on with the band. Hole, we still they still didn't have a permanent bass player for the band, even though they'd already started recording some of the songs and doing demos and writing them and working them up. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Courtney put out an ad. It read. I want someone who can play okay and stand in front of 30,000 people, take off her shirt, have fuck you written on her tits. If you're not afraid of me and you're not afraid to fucking say it, send a letter. No more pussies. No more fake girls. I want a whore from hell. And that was her ad for the bass player. And they hired Kristen Faff, who was the bass player. Who had player. permanently uh, inked on her uh, tits, a uh, bass player from hell. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Horror from hell. Horror from hell. Horror right. from hell. But at the time, she was the best play- bass player that Patty had ever worked with. She was classically trained, and she was super butch. So Patty was pretty happy that Kristen, Kristen came on board. So officially they became a band in the spring of 93. Uh, they were, you know, had all their members and they went to England and played on the BBC. And that was the first time Patty was on TV. They played Beautiful Sun, which we've heard already. Um, Patty was paid $6,000 to co-write and record the album, Live Through This. And she got some monthly living expenses and they went to uh, Marietta Georgia at the Triclops studio and had a Patty was very impressed they had a real um, real deal sound technician good sound quality and a budget to do the recording so this was the first time she'd ever you know had that kind of setup to work in and really enjoyed it mm-hmm so one of the songs that they recorded during that session was another one on the album, and it is Jennifer's Body. Aha! Uh-huh. So let's, uh, I know that one. So let's play a little Jennifer's Body. So um, Patty 
you know, like I said, she was really impressed by the recording, you know, situation that, that they were in. She learned all kinds of things about takes and how you could, you know, use parts of different takes and cannibalize them and make a, you know, make one uh, recording. And she also talks interestingly, I mean, to the point of um, Courtney's uh, style of writing songs and her the sound that she came up with, that she had... Um, this what what Patty calls an endless musical vocabulary when talking she was she listened to a lot of music and got obsessed with different music and then she would um, she could talk like about uh, another band's drumming style on a certain song at, or another um, guitar player's this is Courtney uh, yeah Courtney oh. and so she would make references to other bands and songs and parts and riffs for example to their to the guitar player Eric, she would say, make it like Seasons of Wither from Aerosmith. And she's referencing the guitar arpeggios Mm -hmm. in that song. And she even knew about drummers in that way and would tell, when we give Patty direction, like make it sound like this riff from this song. So she was actually very well... uh, I don't know, immersed in, in music and taking, you know, pieces of what she heard from other songs and stuff like that. And then incorporating them to her songs. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, now we're going to move into, um, the, you know, the point at which Kurt, um, is really going downhill. Um, and in, in, uh, around 1994, he started like he OD'd in Rome and it put him into a coma before that he had locked himself in a room with guns and, uh, the, and the cops were called and, um, you know, he said later that he wasn't suicidal. So, you know, eventually what Courtney arranged an intervention for him, um, which was, you know, they all found very ironic because Courtney was also using and a lot of people in the band, you know, that were around them were also using heroin. But, um, Patty was invited to the her- to the intervention and came of course she was high she had shot up right before going there and came to find that C- Kurt had retired or escaped upstairs and was lying on his bed with Pat Smear and Patty laid down next to them with Kurt in the middle and she was really struck by how fragile he was in that moment and he was like he had detoxed medically before a lot of people do that they just it just gets them off the drug it doesn't actually um you deal know with the addiction it, problem. yeah it doesn't right. it deal with why mm-hmm. and how and how to get them back in a life but now now they wanted him in rehab and he couldn't imagine really stopping using heroin he was he was so like thin and 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 weak and he was she said he was even using concealer under his eyes so that he would look better when he went back down to the intervention um and she knew then you know that he was clinically depressed and she couldn't stay for the intervention she had to leave because she felt like a hypocrite she was strung out also and so she left before you know the intervention really got underway and went to her sisters to get 
really drunk so that she could detox from heroin, which is a typical kind of hamster wheel kind of thing that addicts do. You know, they they quit one drug by using yep, another drug. Yep, yep. And uh, 14 days after that, she heard that he was dead, that it was a parent suicide. It was called an apparent suicide. Now we know that it was. Mm-hmm. And um, on her way to the memorial service, she also got loaded. And it was really bizarre to be back in the house that he, you know, lived in with all these like people there, somebody, uh, many of whom were clearly high, including Courtney, who was upstairs shooting up. So it was a very bizarre memorial service um courtney's estranged mother came to what purpose i'm not sure after he died whole went on hiatus they all kind of went their separate ways and um ironically the album was released one week after kurt passed away lived Um, through this yeah lived through this i know yeah she and patty went into rehab at that point because she you know, she was deeply affected by Kurt's death and she did she wanted to have it mean something and to have it at least help her get get off clean. the smack. Right. Um and, you know, it worked for a while. She was you know, she got a real job painting houses and, you know, try was trying to stay clean when Kristen, who was the bass player, called her up. She had also been in rehab, and she was going to move home to Minneapolis. She called Patty to get together again, and Patty knew this wasn't a good idea for two drug addicts who had just gotten out of rehab to get together. Let's go celebrate. Yeah, she knew that they would use it as an excuse to get high again, so she begged off. And after... Soon after that, she found that Kristen had indeed had one more hit for the road and OD'd in her bathtub. So Patty ended up losing both Kurt and Kristen in a very short period of time, even though Kristen's death was an accident. It was an accidental overdose and Kurt's was a suicide. Yeah. So, you know, this was really hard for for patty she stayed clean uh for a while after uh courtney got the band together again they found a new bass player who was with them for a while melissa, yeah, melissa off the yeah. and she was a real different kind of person than Kristen. she was very sunny disposition she was beautiful curly redhead and um and uh, didn't, you know, wasn't a big drug addict and became good friends with Patty. So they went off to a, um, you know, Patty was sober to go off to a, a festival where they were going to play the album live. And as she says, relapse was as simple as walking downstairs. This is what happened to Patty over and over again. You know, it's like this, this commitment to be sober and to be off the drugs, but not really taking... Um, uh, con- you know, taking the step of, like you said, really trying to figure out why she was an addict, you know, really going into a, a recovery in a committed way. And mm-hmm. so she would just like, something would occur and oh, I'm, I'm off again. Here we go. Taking, you know, doing heroin again. So that, that kind of became a, a, 
a rhythm of, you know, she would sober up before a show or before a tour. They would go to medical detox, Courtney too, um, and get it together for the show and then, you know, and then just fall off the wagon at some point. So this was the time of when they started doing these big festival shows um, where Courtney was just, you know, she was using too. She was all over the place, hard to follow for the band, you know, jumping into the audience, fighting with the other band members. There were the fans fighting were with the audience. <laughs> yeah. Fighting with the audience. They were, she would jump into the audience um, and they would just rip at her clothes and, claw at her and they really only came to see whole because they wanted to see courtney fall apart oh yeah but well, you it's know, a train Pat- wreck you know it's, yeah. a, you know, it's the car crash right. that's right but yeah. patty wanted to you know be a drummer and play the music and do a good job right. if people want to see courtney in action they can watch um some uh youtube video of uh of uh, the Lollapalooza tour in 1995, mm-hmm. where um, you can see Courtney do uh, a dive into the audience. Um, when they started that tour, though, it started by Courtney punching uh, Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Fell and injuring her arm so she couldn't play the guitar. <laughs> so Patty says that was a good thing because that made... That made that the fact that Eric had to intro the songs on the parts that she usually did, which made the tempos perfect because <laughs> Courtney was not involved in setting the tempo. <laughs> yeah, so you know that was a that was an interesting uh, tour, um, and one of the songs they played on that tour, which you can find on YouTube, is Doll Parts. Oh yeah, so I know that let's song. Let's have yeah. a listen to yeah. Doll Parts live. Doll Parts live. You know, that's a pretty famous song for Courtney. Yeah, yeah. Um, Patty comments that, you know, during that time that they were doing these big shows and, and that Courtney was so kind of out of control, that was it was difficult for the other band members because they were either waiting for, you know, they were either stressed and waiting for something horrible and violent to happen, like people rushing the stage, or else they were bored just waiting for Courtney to finish. What What is she doing now? Now she's going on and on acoustic, on an acoustic guitar with this song, or she's jumping in the audience and there's a melee and Patty's just sitting there tapping her foot, you know, like, when do I get to play? Because she's there for the music, you know, mm. not for the 
the scene. Yeah, yeah. But, but Courtney's there to be the front person yeah. and to create the drama and the uh, the light that everybody pays attention to. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So they, um, you know, they drugged out or not yeah she was they were all drugged out they had one one of the next big kind of things that they did was they got invited to be on the mtv video music awards in new york city and patty um had gone there like she had to get you know she had to get high before she went on she was totally strung out courtney was strung out too um, and they, um, played the song Violet on the, on the show. Mm-hmm. And when, um, Patty recalls that she just need, you know, her feeling of going on that show was that she just needed to get through those four minutes because the drugs were totally failing her at that oh, time. Oh yeah, 1995. Yeah. I remember this. And yeah. a- after she sang, well, I'll, I'll tell about that after um, we listen to the song. And when she looks back on the vi- this video of uh, her playing this song, she just is horrified because her eyes are like, pricks, and I watched the video and she looks so intense and uncomfortable but of course she still plays great so let's listen to Violet and then you go watch the YouTube video alright so this is live from the MTV Awards 1995 Holes Violet ladies and gentlemen Hole it's for Kurt and Kristen and River and Joe and Rob and today Joni Abbott, this is for you. Skywalls made up amethyst. All the stars are just like little fists. You should learn when to go. Yeah, so after after they played this song on air, she made it through those four minutes and she, she was leaving the venue and she stumbled into Michael Jackson's entourage. <laughs> he and, and that was the MTV Music Awards that he and Lisa Marie went were on oh, professing to prove their pro- love. Right, yeah, pr- proving to that prove he, he he was heterosexual or, or whatever, whatever or sexual <laughs> um and um or just just plain sexual she was like looking Ugh. you know like oh there's michael jackson uh, i just need to get back to the hotel and get loaded that was her you, you got know, any she, drugs michael nope see ya yeah face to face with michael jackson and all she can do is think about getting loaded and then yeah. she had to go straight to a get on the plane go to an interview and photo shoot for photo shoot for modern drubber 
Drummer magazine, which was doing a story on female drummers. And Sheila E., was one, who was one of her heroes, was mm-hmm. on this panel. There were five women, and it was her chance to relate to them on a peer level, but she was so loaded that all she could do was think about how to look and talk normally. And she looked down at her white shirt sleeve and noticed there was blood trickling uh, from, down her arms because she had right. just shot up in the bathroom. Uh. This was how bad it was. So she was really deep in the shit here. And um, that uh you know but during that time she was still playing with the band and still trying to keep it together to do what she want needed to do and the next recording they did was uh, a recording of gold dust a cover of gold dust woman um that rick okasik produced that was um was that what, for the movie yeah, uh, that, yeah was... that was on the the crow soundtrack. oh that's right that's right that's right so let's have a listen to Courtney Love's uh, rendition or, or of interpretation Nicks, uh, of Gold Dust, right. Dust Woman. Gold Dust Woman, everybody. Well, I mean, come on. That's a great song. Uh, you could pretty much, uh, you know, do anything with it, and it's a great song. So, But uh, it fits, I think it fits Courtney well. Um, yeah, you it's know, a good song uh, for her. Uh, so I can see why uh, why that worked out so yeah. well. Yeah. So now they're, uh, they're going back into the studio to record the next album. Oh, Celebrity Skin. Which is Celebrity Skin, which mm-hmm. is what we started out with, yeah. the program yeah. with. Um, which you informed me that she didn't do the drums on. Patty didn't do the drums on. No, she she didn't record. She was not on that recording. Um, she went back to detox about a month before recording so that she could get into shape for doing it. And they went into uh, the studio. Now, Courtney wanted a slicker sound, so which we'll hear when we hear something off this album. That Yeah, um, yeah, they, they, yeah they were going for a more pop. More uh, produced yeah. and mm-hmm. um, not as harsh. And, and so they hired a producer Michael Beinhorn, who Patty quotes, uh, says, the notably arrogant producer of inconsequential albums by Ozzy Osbourne and Aerosmith, and one decent one by Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's her description of this guy, who obviously she hates because he he totally fucked her over. So he, he was notorious for being hard on drummers, and he talked to women like they were his ex-wives. Uh, Patty made it a point to stay sober, though. Um, and he actually uh, brought her into the studio day after day for eight hours at a time with no other band members, put her in a, you know, in a, a, a box and tried to wear her down. 
he he just read the paper the newspaper in the booth while she was playing and he just kept saying do it again do it again do it again and she was just getting more and more frustrated she was in pain because she's working you know she's playing the drums for eight hours and so staying sober and um but finally this guy wore her down so much that he went to Courtney and told her that Patty was not up to snuff and uh, Courtney approved a replacement who was a session drummer at, which was really really painful for Patty because she thought they were you know kind of a feminist band and here was Courtney going and hiring the session drummer who was a man well also a lot of these songs were written with uh, Billy Corgan uh, if I remember right yeah so you know it's just going for a different feel and different sound than uh than what they were doing before. Yeah, that's right. Uh, she actually, Patty was actually very involved in writing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. in, you know, arranging the music and the songs for this album and, you know, wrote the drum parts herself. And they were her parts and he was telling her to do them differently. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, Courtney was in on it too. The other, I guess, um, Eric and Melissa were kind of kept out of the loop and she never really saw them during this whole time. And so she was fired. She says it took her five minutes to fall off the wagon. Ugh. You know, it was just, she she just, you know, it was just a perfect excuse. Yeah. I mean, anybody would have been upset, but mm-hmm. that was her go-to place because she hadn't done the work she needed to do to, to figure out how to hold herself up without that. Um, and, and after that, Courtney actually wanted, she wasn't fired from the band at that time. She was fired from the recording session and, um, Patty, uh, Courtney wanted her to tour the album. So, so she arranged an intervention for Patty, which Patty thought was so ironic. You know, why didn't Courtney ever have to sober up? Um, she was always meddling in other people's, you know, drug business and not, <laughs> but not, not getting own. clean <laughs> herself. So, you know, it was it was pretty hypocritical. Wow. Um, you know, so 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 Patty went in and out of treatment at that time uh, and kept falling off the wagon. And they invited her to be in the photo shoot for the album, even though she wasn't she doesn't play on the album, but she, she's credited on the album right. and she's on the cover so everybody always thinks that she's played on the album and they actually they had a somebody called her later and said oh i saw the video of you playing you know on on uh, mtv this the song from the album and patty's like that wasn't me they had actually got another drummer to play on this video and dyed her hair red so she looked like patty oh wow you know so that they could carry off this uh this uh, kind of charade about well, Patty being on the album. Let's play um, uh, a little bit of, you know, to show the the pop sensibilities that are coming out here, um, and uh, and how different this uh, this yeah. is. Let's play. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Let's play Malibu.
Yeah, that really is a different sound, isn't oh, it? Oh, much softer voice yeah. from Courtney, yeah. and you know, yeah. there's none of the angst going on there. Right, it's, right. Uh, it's sweet. So, well, yeah. So what? Uh, so that, so what, she what happens a, when you lose your band? And yeah, she got a uh, settlement. Oh, she did. Uh, uh, oh, she didn't want to go on tour and all well, of that. Well, she she did. She went into rehab to get clean for the tour, but then she got a letter from their lawyers saying that she was off the tour too. So basically they fired her from everything. So she got a settlement, which was not really a good thing for her because as you can imagine for a heroin addict, um, a huge amount of money doesn't last very long. (laughs) And in fact, it fuels, you know, more drug use and that's what happened. And she said that chunk of money started her descent into hell. And before that, she'd spent about two hundred dollars a day on drugs. But at this, at, at, when she got the money, her use skyrocketed. Um, she blew through the settlement. She, you know, she just went through a lot of really bad times. And she tried to stay with her dad for a while and clean up, but got into some filthy drug dens in Seattle. She returned. She went back to L.A. and uh, she had no job, no money. And she had she started trading sex for drugs, um, which you can imagine for I mean any woman is a tough thing to do, but for a lesbian it would be you know possibly even more difficult. She had to totally dissociate from her, you know her actions. She sold all of her belongings and moved to the streets. And the only important thing to her at that time was the quest not to feel. Um, so this was, you know, at one point in this, uh, horrible time period of living on the streets for four months, she looked into this church and saw a drum set and had this flicker of memory. Like at the end of the world, I remembered I'd been a drummer. Um, so finally she, after she had been living with men who used her for sex and controlled her drugs, she escaped she went to Washington and got um, just went cold turkey. Stayed with her dad and her brother, and um, and c- came back together with Courtney. Actually, Hole broke up in two thousand two, but yeah. just before that, Courtney called her and saying she was starting a new band. Um, she wanted uh, uh, Patty to come play with her, and. Um, and after that, um, there was also uh, another Courtney Love album called um, America's Sweetheart in 2004 yeah. that she played on. Oh. But, well. you know, this was before she actually got truly sober. She didn't get truly sober until 2005. Um, so she was still really struggling with that. But at um, age 37, she finally went into rehab for the last time. But she was with some other bands. Um, the Courtney Love uh, solo album, America's Sweetheart. We have a song we're going to play from that called Mono. All right, let's hear it.
Yeah, that um, this is pretty pretty much back to the whole yeah, sound, isn't it? That's, that, that's, yeah, that's the Courtney we all love, yeah. right? That's, that's <laughs> Patty back there doing her thing. That's right, that's right. But around this time, she was... This is the time when she realized she was just living hand to mouth. She had no pleasure in life, and she really had nothing left to lose. And she went, really went back into back to rehab at the age of 37. And she counts March 2005 as her sober birthday. Oh. And um, she this time she did it differently. She really surrendered to the process. Um, she got out and she got a job working with dogs oh. um, in Yay, a shelter dogs. and mm-hmm. really felt the healing benefits of being around animals and yeah. started her own business um, called Dog Rocker. You know who her first client was? No. Meg Ryan. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this is L.A. Uh huh. And now she's uh, married and has a uh, a daughter. Okay. And uh, who her brother donated the sperm for? Oh, very cool. Yeah. So it's um oh, and she's uh, her life today is she's a she, her wife, her child, her sobriety, and her music. So she's gotten back to playing music with indie bands and with her brother, and um, she also teaches. Uh, at a rock and roll camp for girls. Oh so man, she's a this drum is teacher. A happy yeah. ending. It really for, is for was... for a uh, for a gay princess. Yeah. Love it. All right, that's good. Okay, so uh, well, it sounds like you liked the book. I did. I read it twice. You read it twice. I did. It wow. was actually it was really hard to read in some ways because it's hard to read about somebody being in that situation, especially when you like right now. I have somebody in my life that yes. I'm kind of concerned as. Mm-hmm going down a bad road mm-hmm. and you know how, how do addiction yeah. and depression you know intersect and yeah. why do people become addicts and, yeah. and what thing, can what can they their friends and family do about it right. if anything right uh, which is you know not there's not much you can do you I can, know, which, you what, can suggest maybe put some things out there right, you know and up to the person. We, we talked about intervention but in the end it really just comes down to the person themselves finally just going I've had enough. Yeah. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. I'm going to make a change and sticking with it. Yeah, I really uh, appreciated the book for her wrapping up, you know, in the last couple of chapters about that, you know, reflecting back on her parents and recognizing there really wasn't anything they could have done to stop her because she found what she calls the cord that plugged her into the world. And uh, you can't... Two alcoholics, it, yeah. uh, you know, it's kind of in the DNA uh, so she may have um, may have just been born with that gene. Yeah, uh, that's what she to, thinks to begin with, and uh, and then had to, you know, fight that and come to the conclusion that she just needed to abstain completely, not only yeah. just like her parents did. That's right. And the one one thing that keeps her from from using again and ever going back to that, because she knows it's just a an action away, you know, mm-hmm. except for that she has all these important things she's living for now, that the drug stopped working and she'll never forget how the last shot failed her and that one more time would kill her. So that's the thing that keeps her, you know, sober and sane and, you know, enjoying life. Well, good for Patty Schemmel. Uh, and uh, I'm glad you uh, enjoyed the book. Um, and hopefully uh, our fans will go out there and uh, and read it. I hope so. It's worthwhile, I would say. All right. Well, let's see. What's next for us? 
Well, I've been uh, assigned a book, <laughs> but I think it's going to be really good. I've yes, already started reading it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We normally let you pick the books. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, uh, I I think you're going to enjoy. Yeah. This once book in a while, enough. something comes yes, out uh, that's written by a great author and important, and you know, I'm happy to go down that way. But I got to say, I don't know if I said this. Uh, at the beginning, oh, I did say it. I think that uh, the the folks at Decapo Press are are friends, and they write. They put out some great music books. So check out their website and see if they have anything else up there that's coming down the pike that you might like to read. All right, so there you have it. Uh, Patty Schemmel's hits so hard uh, gets a big thumbs up from the Rock and Roll Librarian and from the Rock and Roll Archaeologist. So <laughs> we'll see you next time. Yep. Bye bye. Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes please visit rnrap.com for more information. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.